God, this message about Jesus is not an ordinary message. Uh, it's not um, the kind of uh, religion where we're just trying to find some way to connect with you or trying to uh, do good things to somehow uh, kind of uh, balance the scales between uh, what we do have done wrong and what we have done right. It's not the kind of thing where we come and sort of make stuff up and try to uh, have some sort of moral uh, standing uh, to uh, to stand on here. Um, as we just uh, sang, this is about the Son of God coming down and dying in our place. What an incredible, incredible story. I pray that you would send your Spirit to confirm the truth of this message and to give us uh, excitement over the message of Jesus, that, that this would not just be something that is, that is human-based or something that we're trying to, to do to sort of make you uh, love us more. Uh, the truth is that you love us far more than we could ever imagine, far more than we could ever even fathom. God, in your grace, you have, you have uh, accepted us in Jesus Christ and forgiven all of our sins in him. And and now you call us uh, your children when we belong to Jesus, when we put our faith in him. So I pray that you would bring the gospel back to the forefront of our, of our hearts so that we would be stirred for love uh, for you and love for Jesus. Use your word uh, today to shape us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, when we were uh, early in our marriage, we had some very close friends, and they uh, one year got what was the best present that you could possibly imagine getting, and they were so excited to, to share what they had received. It was uh, an industrial strength food blender, and uh, I don't remember what the actual name of the thing was, but the husband kept calling it the, uh, the Vegematic 5000, and basically what this thing is, it's a, it's a lawnmower engine that they've flipped upside down and, and put a blender top on, so basically it'll turn anything into sort of a, a mushy, uh, nice food consistency for you. And they were so very excited to have been gifted this thing. I mean, this is like a $500 blender, and they were so, so happy. They were telling us about all the stuff you could do. You could just throw some vegetables in there and blend it up, and then you've got like a pureed soup. You can just serve it right there. It's already hot. You don't even have to heat it up. At the, all the speed of the, the blades just put soup right on the table for you. And, you know, I... I I think what they were expecting, as they were sharing this great news with us, I think what they were expecting was for Emily and I to immediately rush out and say, well, where can we buy one of these Vegematic 5,000 things? But uh, the truth is that Emily and I weren't really that interested in having all of our food be kind of a pulpy uh, mess. Uh, so we kind of you know, politely nodded and listened to them, and they gave us kind of a promotional uh, video to watch online, and we did that, and that was interesting and all that. But but we didn't go out and buy one of these things. Which brings us to our question that we're looking at this morning. What do you do when you're super excited about something and others don't share the same excitement that you have? Or worse yet, what if you're super excited about something and, and people actually uh, reject you because of that? They say, no, that's actually a harmful thing. It's not just that I'm not interested, but that's actually a harmful thing. If you're a Christian, maybe you have experienced this before. You're excited because Jesus has given you new life and you're experiencing the joy and the peace and the hope and the love of being united to Christ and being connected with other Christians in community. And you're so excited, you're telling other people about it and you're inviting them to church and stuff like that. And they say, well, okay, that's fine, but you know, it's just really not my thing. 
Or worse yet, they, they respond in a hostile manner. Well, I could never be a Christian because Christians are these mean-spirited bigots who are ruining the world. And you think, wait a second. No, no, this is something I'm excited about. I mean, Jesus is amazing. And what do you do when people don't want to hear about Jesus? As we're continuing the book of Acts this morning, we're coming to the first time that the church faces opposition to proclaiming uh, the name of Jesus. Uh, this fall, we're, we're looking at the book of Acts together to gain a sense of God's power at work to change the world. So uh, the book of Acts tells the story of the earliest church uh, from when Jesus ascended to heaven, left the church, uh, gave the, the church the, ho- the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we see the, the early years of the Christian church, where we kind of came from, the roots of the church. And as we're doing this, we're, we're getting a sense of the power of God at work uh, that they were able to witness to uh, to get it to regain a sense then for us of the power of God coming and breaking into our world uh, today as well. So today we hit the first roadblock to this, the first speed bump along the way. Uh, we're in Acts chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 31. If you haven't already turned there in your Bibles, this would be a really good time to do that. So Acts chapter 4. Uh, verses 1 through 31. And, and if you don't have a Bible, uh, there are Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. It's found on page 1080. So as we uh, look at Acts 4, look at the story together, we're going to learn uh, three lessons for us as a church today uh, as we look at how the, the early church faced opposition to the message about Jesus. We learn the first message as we pick up the story immediately after Peter and John have healed a man in the name of Jesus. So if you weren't here last week, Acts 3 is about um, this man who had been crippled from birth. He'd never walked a step in his life, and he's begging for money at the temple, and Peter and John uh, go to him and they say, you know, we're not going to give you money. We don't have money to give you, but, but we do have the power of God. So in the name of Jesus, walk. And the guy gets up, and his legs are strengthened. He's jumping and leaping and praising God all over the temple, and, and the people then too are praising God, and, and Peter is preaching and saying, this is about the power of Jesus at work in this man's life. That's where the power to heal comes from. And so he preaches a, a message of repentance, repent and turn to God in Jesus. So, so he's teaching the people, preaching uh, in the name of Jesus. But the uh, religious leaders of his time were not very happy with this. So Acts 4 starts like this. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to be about 5,000. First note the the contrast between the religious leaders of the day and and the people and how they respond. The the religious leaders are are irritated. I mean, just weeks prior, they had been uh, part of making sure that Jesus was killed by Pilate and killed by the Roman authorities. And here they're having to deal with Jesus' followers again, people again preaching in the name of Jesus. So so they're really irritated. But on the other hand, at the same time, uh, God is bringing lots more people to put their faith in Jesus, to accept this message about him. And so in Acts 1, we hear that there are 120 uh, followers of Jesus. And then uh, later on in Acts 2, we hear that there are 3,000 believers in Jesus. And now in Acts 4, we've got up to 5,000 uh, believers in Jesus. So we're seeing that even as the church uh, is about to encounter its first opposition, God is growing the church. Verse 5, the next day the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? 
I want you to get the, the setting here in mind here. This is the, the most important gathering of people in all of Judaism. This is the center of the Jewish faith in Jerusalem, and these are the most important people. So the, the biggest, most powerful leaders of the Jewish people are gathered here in this council together to decide the fate of these two people. And it probably doesn't look quite as formal as my picture here, but it's, that kind of gets the idea here. This is a formal council. They're bringing formal charges against these men. They're trying to figure out what's going on here and what are we going to do about it. And they ask the crucial question, by what power, by what name are you doing these things? And in a setting that would have been intimidating, likely, Jesus had just stood there himself earlier and been condemned to death. In that intimidating situation, well, Peter's not intimidated because this is exactly the question that he wants to answer. This is what he's been telling the people. By what power and by what name has he been doing this? This is exactly what he wants to answer. Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now notice that, that Peter's not afraid to put a couple barbs in his answer. In verse 9 he's saying, by the way, we're being interrogated here about an act of kindness. Someone who couldn't walk is now walking, and we're getting interrogated about that act of kindness. It's hardly the kind of thing that you'd expect to come before a council about. And further, uh, we see in verse 10, he's, he's reminding them that, that you crucified Jesus, and yet it's Jesus' power that has healed this man. Jesus is the one that you rejected, that, that you had killed, but God raised to life. And then in the quotation from Psalm 118 there in verse 11, that the quotation is, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. God has done it, and this is marvelous in our eyes. So he's putting the, the, uh, the second person pronoun, you, in there. He's the stone that you builders rejected. So he's putting a couple barbs in there for the Jewish leaders. But the real point is the answer to the question. By what authority, what power, what name has this healing been done? Well, the answer is simple. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who has the power to heal this man. It's by the name of Jesus that he was healed. And that answer points to something bigger. It means that, that Jesus is the one that God sent to rescue the world. And in fact, he is the only one who brings God's salvation. Now, it's popular in our day to think that there are many ways uh, to God. In fact, when I was on vacation uh, once, I was at a church, and the pastor was preaching on, on this kind of a passage that points to the uh, exclusivity of Jesus, and the point that he ended up making from that was basically uh, there are lots of roads to God. Jesus is the best one, but there are other roads to God. So it's a, it's a popular belief in our time. Uh, even among uh, Christians, that there are many ways to God, and it then tends to be unpopular to make an exclusive claim. But that's exactly what Peter's doing in verse 12 here. There is no other name that salvation is found in. God gave one for the salvation of all. And if any of us is going to receive God's salvation, we have to receive it in Jesus himself. Popular or not, that's the truth. And that's what Peter proclaims. Salvation is found only in Jesus. Peter puts it boldly and he puts it without apology. Now the leaders are caught off guard. Verse 13 
When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. And here's the thing. Peter and John aren't such special people themselves. I mean, they're just ordinary people. They're, they're not uh, skilled in the, in the best rhetoric of the day. They're not skilled in the best scholarship of the day. But they speak clearly and boldly about Jesus. They speak of him powerfully. And this is the first lesson that we learn for ourselves as a church today, is that, that we are called in the face of opposition to the message of Jesus to speak clearly and boldly about him. We are to speak clearly and boldly about Jesus. I mean, that's what Peter and John are doing here. They've been with Jesus. They saw his power at work to heal people. They, they heard his teaching about the kingdom of God. They, they saw him killed. They, they saw him later resurrected to, to life after death. They saw him ascend to heaven. They, they received the Holy Spirit to confirm the message in them and then to empower them to proclaim Jesus to others. They, they've experienced this. And so, of course, they're going to talk about Jesus. Because that's the thing, right? You, you talk about the things you love. Now, to illustrate this point, I've asked uh, Zach Sweet to come up here and uh, help me out. So, Zach, if you haven't ran off, run off. Now, uh, I uh, did not tell Zach what I would have him do, but I told him I would not embarrass him, or at least try not to embarrass him, and I told him I knew that he could do this. So, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you uh, a scenario and then ask you how you would respond to that scenario. So, he told me this morning he wasn't nervous. Are you nervous now? Nope. Okay, good. Okay, so here's the scenario. Say it's after church here, and you're out in the lobby, and uh, you hear the following conversation. Uh, someone saying, you know what, uh, I want to go out to, to eat uh, today after church. Um, you don't have anything at home, and we decide we're going to go out to eat. You know, I, I, I like the restaurants here in Ludington, but I'm, I'm in the mood for something new here. I, I'm willing to travel a little bit here. Uh, so what would you say to that? I know a great little restaurant for you, and I'd love to go with you. <laughs> uh, there's this little place in Hart, and I don't get paid to advertise for them, but it's in the back of a Mexican grocery store. Um, it's called La Probadita, and they have the best food ever. <laughs> Beautiful. Ladies and gentlemen, Zach Sweet. <laughs> Thank you, Zach. I didn't have to tell Zach ahead of time to talk about La Probadita. He didn't have to prepare to tell you how good their food was. And in fact, he's probably got the rest of the speech uh, lined up for you. So if you, you talk to him after the service, ask him exactly what to order and, and where to sit and all these things. He'll tell you about it. Here's the thing. Zach loves the food there, and he's gotten us to love the food there as well. So he is willing to talk about it, and he's ready to talk about it. He finds La Probadita easy to talk about because he loves it there. He's experienced it, and he wants you to be able to experience it too. And of course, Jesus is so much better than Mexican food, even uh, the wonderful Mexican food at La Probadita in heart. See, Jesus is, is amazing. He takes uh, people like us who are, are miserable sinners, and he takes us when we're at our, our very worst. The Bible says we were dead in our sin. Dead. That means that we can't do anything to make ourselves right with God. We can't do anything to approach the throne of God because he is holy and we are sinful. We are dead in our sins and he takes us in Christ and he makes us alive with him so that rather than being his enemies, we are now his children. We are sons and daughters of God in Jesus. I had more to say, sorry. <laughs> we are sons and daughters of God in Jesus. Jesus is so amazing. So, of course, we want to talk about him, right? I mean, that should be our natural response is to, to love talking about Jesus. 
You don't have to cry and love it. That's okay. So the first thing, this is the first thing we learn about as we look at how the church faces opposition to the name of Jesus. It's, it's that we speak clearly and boldly about him because we love him. He has done something so amazing for us. He has, he has given us life. We found life in him and not just a little pitiful existence, but true, abundant life to the full in him. And so we want to talk about him. We want to talk about him boldly. We want to talk about him clearly. We find ourselves talking about him all the time. That's, that's what Peter and John are doing here. Now, if we're going to do that, of course, that means that we actually have to love Jesus. It means that God's Spirit has to be working in our hearts so that that message of the gospel really is the center and the core of our existence, that that the reign of God, the kingdom of God, really is what we desire more than anything else, that it's the treasure of our hearts. So the first thing that we have to come to terms with is the gospel. God's Spirit has to speak the truth of the gospel to us so that we actually love Jesus. And and some of you here, I, I know you love Jesus so much. I mean, that's the starting point for this. And then from there, we need the Spirit to give us the words to be able to say boldly and clearly who we've discovered Jesus to be. Peter's speech doesn't come from his own uh, learning. It doesn't come from himself. Look at verse 8. Peter says this, filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's why the leaders are surprised, because this is just an ordinary person, and yet his words are clear. They are powerful. They are bold, because God's Spirit is speaking through him to them. And that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. Back in Luke 12, he says to his followers, When you're brought before synagogues and rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. So Peter is experiencing exactly that. The Spirit is filling him and giving him the words to be able to testify to Jesus clearly and boldly before this uh, council of Jewish rulers. And that's what we need, too. If we are to speak clearly about Jesus, if we are to speak boldly about him, God's Spirit has to be in us, confirming the message of the gospel, giving us a love for Jesus, making us excited to say the name of Jesus and to tell what he has done for us, to tell who he is. So the starting point, then, is for us to to pray that God would fill us with the Spirit. And Jesus said that, that, that God loves to answer that prayer. In, in Luke 11, 9 through 13, he's encouraging us. He, Jesus is saying, ask, seek, knock. If, if you, even though you're sinful people, if you're parents, uh, then you still give good gifts to your children. You like to give them good gifts. You don't give them a rock if they ask for a fish or a scorpion if they ask for some bread. No, if you, even though you're wicked people, can give your sons and daughters good gifts, how much more will God, who is a holy God and a loving God, give you the Holy Spirit if you ask him? Jesus says God delights to give us the Spirit. So that's the starting point is for us to be praying that God would fill us with the Spirit so that we'd have a love for Christ and that we'd have boldness and clarity in how we talk about Jesus. So the first thing we learn as we look at uh, the church facing opposition is that, that we are called to clearly and boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. As we continue, we learn a second lesson as we see the response of the leaders to all this. So they've heard what Peter has to say and they're baffled. Uh, they're not convinced, uh, and so they're deliberating it over, over what on earth they should do next. Verse 15. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they commanded them, and then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, the leaders are stuck here. 
they're convinced that Jesus is a fraud. They've already, uh, a few weeks earlier, been instrumental in having him killed by the Romans, and, and they haven't changed their mind about Jesus at all. But the problem is that they can't deny that the Jesus' followers have just done a powerful miracle. This guy had been never walked a step in his life, and now he's walking and jumping all around, and everyone can see it. So they can't deny that the apostles have healed him because there were people there who saw this man get healed by them. So the best they can do is sort of threaten them and warn them and tell them, hey, you guys stop talking about, about that guy. They don't even want to say the name as they're deliberating in the council. Verse 19, But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So, of course, threats aren't going to stop these apostles from preaching Jesus because what they are doing is what they have been called and commissioned to do. To proclaim Jesus is what God has called them to do. That's obedience to God. So if it comes between obeying humans and obeying God, then of course you're going to obey God. What else are you supposed to do? Now, the lesson that, that we learn from this as a church today is that we have to be clear and make sure that we're actually listening to God. We learned this positively from the example of Peter and John. We're going to continue to obey God, continue to listen to him, even in the face of threats from humans. But we also learn it negatively from the example of the religious leaders of the day. See, they have made up their mind that Jesus is a fraud, and nothing is going to change their mind about it. They, they've shut off their minds to even consider that God might be using Jesus to speak to them. When they're confronted by clear evidence of the power of Jesus to heal, this crippled man who's now walking and jumping all over the place, they're confronted by this clear evidence of the power of Jesus, the only thing they can think of is how to keep the power that they have and minimize the damage. I mean, that's really what this is about. Rather than having a theological concern, what God is doing, this is a political concern. How do we keep power? So rather than considering that, that Jesus might be the one that God actually did send to rescue them, they're not concerned with what God is doing here. This is just about damage control. How do we manage the situation? How do we make sure everything's okay? They've made up their mind, and they don't want to hear another word about Jesus. All they are interested in doing is shutting up these Christians so they can continue to enjoy the power that they have been passed on to them from generations. Now, for us as a church today, this is a sobering reminder that, that we can easily uh, plug up our ears to what God is actually trying to say to us. Our sinful hearts can, can trick us into chasing things that make us deaf to the voice of God so that we don't actually hear Him. We become more concerned with uh, power and with privilege or with our own agendas, and we fail to hear and heed the voice of God. This is what makes me uh, so sad when I, when I hear churches getting stuck in these political uh, power struggles and this kind of thing. I think you know, our, our task is together to, to listen to God, to, to hear his voice, and to faithfully pursue that together, not to try to uh, kind of manipulate things on our own power or try to uh, find little, uh, little uh, bits and pieces of, of political power, human power over others. No, this is about us together listening to God and obeying him and going forward together. So the second lesson that we uh, learn as a church is to make sure that we're listening to God. We've got to be clear on that. This is one of the reasons that uh, it's so important for all of us to be spending time in the Bible and spending time praying. Because if you want to hear the voice of God, you have to be uh, listening for the voice of God, spending time with God. That's how God speaks to us. He speaks to us through His Word, through Scripture. He, he speaks to us as we spend time with Him uh, in prayer. 
His word brings correction then to our sinful hearts and we're tempted to uh, stray away from his voice and stray away from his call. So scripture brings us back to the truth and then gives us the fortitude to obey God no matter what, no matter what threats or anything else that we're facing. So we have to make sure that we're listening to God. Uh, We learn a third lesson then as we uh, follow the apostles next, see what they do next. This is starting in verse 23. They've just been released from uh, the custody from the Jewish uh, leaders there. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel and this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So the immediate response of Christians to opposition to the proclamation of Jesus is to gather together and to pray. What a great picture of what the church is called to do. It's a, it's a, 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 a moment where we stop and we we stop trying to strive in our own power, but we stop and we recognize that we are totally dependent upon God, and He is the one who's in control. And may our church today be a church like that. At every moment when we're in trouble, to stop and to pray together, when, when things are going well, to stop and to pray together, and to lift our voices uh, to the one who is, is able to accomplish far more than we could imagine. But don't uh, miss the content of what they're praying, too. This is important. I think, I think in their position, we would tend to pray first and foremost for protection and for security. And that's not necessarily wrong, but I want you to see the, the content of what they're saying, because this is more important. I know that first of all, what they're praying for, and this is verse uh, 24, they're first praying in recognition that God is sovereign which means that he is king, he is in control. So the first thing they do is to remember that God is the one who made everything. He made the earth, he made the heavens, he made the sea, he made all the creatures. So this creator, God, of course he is still in control. And he's the one who's king. He's sovereign over everything. So they remind themselves of the sovereignty of God. And then they take up uh, scripture to understand what's going on in their time. They, they pray Psalm 2, uh, that, that why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Why are they plotting against God? Why are they plotting against his anointed one? Anointed one means is the one that God's king is. So Messiah, Christ, that's all in the same uh, term there. So they're looking back to scripture saying, well, that's what's going on here too. Herod and Pilate and, and the, the leaders of the day, the, the Gentiles, they're all conspiring against God's king. That's what happened to Jesus. They they see in Psalm 2 what has been fulfilled in Jesus. And then further, they see in verse 28 that that this doesn't mean that God was not in control. What the nations were doing as they were conspiring against God's king was exactly what God had uh, determined beforehand would happen. So even, even this rebellion against God, God uses that as part of his plan to bring salvation to the world. 
So the first thing that the church is doing here is going back to what they know is true of God, that he is sovereign, that he is in control. So they're first setting that stone in place. This is what we know of God. He's the creator. He spoke of this before, and this was part of God's plan. He is in control. And then notice when they turn what they ask of God in verses 29 and 30. They first of all ask God to consider the threats that have been made against them. And this is their way of asking for protection. They're, they're just saying, God, be aware that we have been threatened. And, that, and then just leave it to God then to, and trust that he will take care of it in the way that he sees fit. So first they say, God, consider their threats. But then uh, more importantly, they ask God to give them power to boldly proclaim his word. In other words, the mission that God has given them of proclaiming Jesus is more important than their personal safety. So yes, God, consider their threats. Consider that we are being threatened here and pushed. But God, give us boldness to be able to proclaim the name of Jesus as we're, as we're commissioned to do, as we're called to do. And then thirdly, uh, in verse uh, 30, they ask God to continue to heal and to perform signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. In other words, they're asking God to continue to confirm the message about Jesus through powerful miracles like the healing of the man uh, who was crippled and who can now walk. So this is what the church is asking. They're coming back to what they know is true of God, that he is sovereign, he is in control. And then they're asking God not only to watch over them, but to give them power to proclaim and power for this mission that he has given them. That's how the church is gathering to respond. And then in verse 31, we see that God responds to their prayers. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. God hears the prayers of his church. And he shakes the building to confirm for them, yes, I am hearing your prayer. And then exactly as they asked, he's filling them with the Spirit so that they can proclaim the word of God boldly and clearly. So the lesson for us as a church now is that when, when things get difficult, we've got to unite as a church and to pray that God would empower our proclamation of Jesus. We come together, we pray that God would boldly uh, give us boldness to speak the message. See, when, when things do get difficult, when we face opposition, when things are hard, the church must come together in unity because this is, of all times, when we most need each other. And then we come together to the source of power who is able to uh, give us boldness to proclaim the name of Jesus. Uh, years ago, I worked uh, for the National Park Service in a seasonal position on their uh, trail crew. And um, one week, we were charged with mapping out a, a, a per- perspective uh, spot that connected two different trails together. And I think some of you have heard me uh, say this before. It's a, a memory that's imprinted on my, my mind here. But, but we were trying to map out this, uh, this perspective hike, and so we were kind of the guinea pigs to see if this was a doable route. And things started out really well. It's a beautiful area, um, lots of great things that were going on, miles and miles of hiking. But then toward the end of the day, as uh, the sun was sort of getting a little bit lower, light was getting a little more dim, we came across a problem. We had to cross a pretty fast-moving river. And it was called a creek on the map and stuff like that. But, but this was really a substantial river by this point. There had been a lot of rain. It was also glacier-fed. So it was just a, a pretty good river in, in front of us. So, so we realized that we had to cross that. So we got on the radios, and we were calling the other half of our, of our team. And we'd call, and we'd call. But for some reason, the radio wasn't working. We didn't get a signal. So we're calling and calling and calling, and nothing, nothing. Probably half hour went by, and we finally said, okay, well, well we can't do anything else. We're going to have to cross this river. 
and we've got packs on and everything, and if, if you've uh, been, spent time in the wilderness, you know if you have a pack and you're crossing a river, that's a dangerous situation. You can easily get swept uh, downstream and, and under the water and everything. So, but we decided, you know, there's no way that we can do this individually. We'd already had to cross a few uh, individual strands, smaller strands, and, and even when the water was, you know, just barely above your knee, uh, the current was so fast that it was hard to even cross, even at that shallow of a depth, and the rocks are rolling under your feet, uh, you know, big-sized boulders rolling under your feet, and that's how fast the current was. So we knew that there was no chance that we were going to be able to go over waist deep and be able to cross that without getting swept downstream. So what we decided to do is that we'd make a four-man huddle. So each of us grabbed the two shoulders of the, the guys on either side of us, and we decided, you know, one guy's at the point at the front where the uh, water's coming in, and the other guy's at the bottom trying to hold him up, and, and we slowly made our way across. And when the first guy in started getting to the deepest part of the current, rocks were rolling under his feet, the three of us had enough traction. We were able to keep going, and then we all get in the thick of it, and all, you know, with eight feet instead of two, we were able to slowly get enough grip to be able to cross. And then when I started, I was the guy, in the, the, the last guy in. When my feet started to sweep away. The last guy had got some purchase on the other bank. We were able to crawl up. When things got tough, we had to band together. There's no way we could have crossed that river safely if we were just by ourselves and individually. But with the four of us held together and working together, and I I was praying quite a bit during that time as well. It's one of the more scary moments I've had in my life, but we were able to band together and to cross that slowly. What we could have never done individually, we were able to do safely as a team because we banded together. And that's what the church is doing here. That they're realizing this is something bigger than we can handle individually. We have to band together. We have to, we have, to have the Christian community around us to support us if we're ever going to be able to do this. We have to do it together. When things get difficult, you band together. And, of course, the major difference between what the church is doing here and what the church does today and what we're doing on Trail Crew is that we're not just banding together and hoping that somehow we can have enough power uh, together to get through this. The church lifts up our voices together. We come together, and then we lift our voices in prayer to the one who has infinite resources, the God who is in control over all things. So we don't just uh, cross hoping in our own power. We, we bind together, and we pray to God, knowing that he is the one who is in control, and he's the one who has the power to give us, uh, to be able to enable us to proclaim the name of Jesus with power. So that's what the church does here. They're they're coming together when they're persecuted, and they're lifting their voices in prayer to God, who's able to then give them the power to proclaim Jesus. And then God shakes the building so they know that, yes, he heard, and yes, he will empower them. So the third lesson we learn here from the church facing opposition is that we are called to unite together as a church and to pray that God would uh, empower our proclamation of the name of Jesus. And this is really the, the whole point of Acts 4. This is all about proclaiming the message of Jesus. This is what the whole thing amounts to. This is about God giving the church power to boldly proclaim Jesus. And that's what the whole chapter is about. Now here's uh, the problem for us. We live in a world that is full of sales pitches, right? Everyone wants something from you, uh, and everyone's going to try to get your money or get your time or get your talent. Everyone wants something from you. And because of that, in that kind of a context, the church's proclamation of Jesus can look like another sales pitch. I came across an article uh, last year called, uh, What Christians Are Really Thinking When They Invite You to Church. So if you see an article like that, uh, of course, I've got to immediately click on that and read the article because I think it's going to be interesting. But the woman who's writing it says uh, that she used to think that that was true of Christians. They just want something from me. And so she was always annoyed when someone would invite her to church or some sort of uh, church gathering and, and, or they'd give her a Bible verse or something like that. She always felt like, okay, well, it's a sales pitch. They, they want something from me. 
But eventually, uh, she came for some reason to read the Bible, and as she was doing that, God's Spirit confirmed the truth of the message, and she came to put her faith in Jesus. She, she said, I can't really explain what happened, but, but I was reasoning. It was, it was true. I saw that this was a true message, that this is really what I need in my life, and, and God changed my life through that. And she found herself then being that annoying person who invites other people to church. So she explains to those who are not yet followers of Jesus, she says, every invitation to church is an I love you and I want this indescribable love, peace, and joy for you because I genuinely care about you. The people that invite you to church are just like that friend that insists that you try the new Puerto Rican restaurant downtown or that new, not very new, Mexican restaurant in Hart. They've experienced something amazing and they want it for you too. It's like that but on almighty steroids. When a friend or a kindly stranger, a relative or a playgroup parent says, hey, why don't you come to church with me on Sunday? What they mean is, I love you so much, I cannot describe what I know you can get from this because I can't even put into words what it has done for me. And that's why we keep proclaiming Jesus, because Jesus is amazing. He has transformed who we are. He has changed everything for us. We were enemies of God, and now we're children of God. We're reconciled to God in Jesus, and so we want to talk about him. We want others to experience what what God has done in our life as well, and that's why we invite them to church. That's why we we want them to meet our Christian friends and see Christian community in action. We, We want them to have what we have been given ourselves. So what we learn from from Acts 4 is to do just that, that that no amount of threat or opposition or anything else is going to stop us from talking about Jesus because Jesus has done something incredible for us and we want others to be able to experience the same thing. So we're given encouragement here in Acts 4 that, that God is the one who empowers his church to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. So here's the the takeaway uh, for us as a church. We see, first of all, that the first lesson was to talk about Jesus clearly and boldly, right? And if that's going to happen, we need God's Spirit to be in us and to be confirming the message, giving us a, a, a love for Jesus that's contagious and then be able to give us the right words. So we need the Spirit to fill us so we can talk about Jesus clearly and boldly. But we also need to make sure that we're actually listening to God and not just uh, the people around us or not just our stubborn selves. So we have to come back to Scripture again and again and again to actually hear the voice of God, to make sure we're not actually uh, disobeying God. And the third lesson then is to, to pray with other Christians. We are to be a church that's marked by prayer. Now, as I was thinking about this, I thought, well, you know what? We get to do that right now. We can apply one of the, the lessons we learned from that as a church uh, right now. Uh, over the past year, I've asked you to consider praying for someone that you have a relationship with that doesn't yet know Jesus. And I've handed out these little cards. Some of you have those. And I've encouraged you to write the name of that person on the card and kind of carry it with you in your pocket or your purse or whatever to remind you to, to pray for them. And I would like to offer to uh, pray with you, uh, if you are willing. Um, there are a bunch of index cards in the pew racks in front of you. They're right in front of the, the blue Bible in the middle there, or maybe it's a black Bible in the middle. Um, if you would like, I would invite you to write the name of someone that God has put on your heart who doesn't yet know Jesus. Uh, write the name of that person on there, and if you'd like, you can write your own name on there too. And as we continue worship, we're going to sing two more songs. I'm going to invite you, if you would be so bold, as to go ahead and come up forward. I'm going to have a little... Uh, basket that I'm going to set on the um, table here and just put their name on there and uh, you could, if you could come up during the songs and just 
put it in the basket, and then I will pray with you for that person. I will pray that God would give you boldness if you put your name on it, to proclaim the name of Jesus to that person. And the elders are meeting this week for, a, for an elder board meeting, and we're going to pray uh, for these names uh, together. And, and I hope that you'll be so bold as to kind of fill this whole stack up so that we can be a church that's, that's praying for those that God has put, us on, uh, put on our hearts and that we would have uh, boldness, that God would empower us by the Spirit, not just to be saying the words that come to our own minds, but that God would give us words uh, to be able to share uh, the beauty of Jesus with other people. So as we continue to worship in song, I'm going to uh, uh, invite you again to, to put a name in the basket, and, and I'll join you in praying for them. You can put as much detail or as little detail as you want, but at least put their name so I know who to be praying for, and we can join together in praying for those who don't yet know Jesus, because we want them to, because Jesus has done so much for us. He has totally changed everything for us, and we want others to experience that same joy and peace and love and hope that we've found. I want you to uh, join me in prayer. I'm going to give you a moment to, to think, and we're going to pause, and you can think through who m- God might be putting on your hearts there, and you can think about writing their names down here. So please uh, join me in prayer as we continue to worship. God, as the early church uh, confessed, you are the creator. You have made all things. You have one who spoke the universe into existence by your mighty word and and shaped things by your hands and you continue to uphold and to sustain your creation. You are king now as you were king then. I thank you for uh, for your creation. I thank you for your new creation. I thank you for sending Jesus to rescue us. I thank you that you have overcome sin and darkness and death. I thank you that we now, imperfect people that we are, can live in confidence in Christ, knowing that, that you love us and that you have forgiven us in him, you have made us your children, and knowing that no matter what happens, no matter how things look around us, you are in control, and that Jesus is coming back, and when he does, you will make all things new, you will restore all things, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more mourning, no more death. God, I pray that you would send your spirit now to fill us to overflowing with love for Jesus, that his name, that the name of Jesus would be on our lips every day, that we'd be boldly and clearly telling people about how amazing your son is and how amazing you are, this, this wonderful message of salvation in Jesus. May our words and our actions every day proclaim that Jesus is king. <coughs> Father, when we are timid, I pray that you'd give us boldness. When we are afraid, I pray that you'd give us courage. And when we simply don't know what to say, I pray that you'd give us the right words. Father, you have placed people in our lives who need you, who are living outside of of your gospel right now, who need to hear about Jesus and find life in him. As we pause here to wait on you in silence, I pray that you'd bring these people to mind, that we may pray for them and have the courage to speak Jesus to them. God, we have hope that you will answer our prayer because you have rescued us from darkness to light. You have rescued us from death to life. And if you can save hardened sinners like us, then you can save anyone. In your grace, God, I pray that you would give us, your people, your church, boldness to speak about Jesus. And I pray that you'd go before us to open hearts and minds to the amazing life that is found in Jesus. We look forward to being able to, to praise you and to celebrate with others who find life in you. I thank you that you are a God who hears our prayers. Amen.